Well, again, uh, we're glad to welcome our, our other speaker for the weekend, Pastor Barkman, who's here from North Carolina. At uh, the start of the year, when the session began to discuss the matter of uh, who we would have speak at this weekend, um, various names come up, and uh, one of which was our, our brother. And I, and I was familiar with the name, but I, I didn't know much more than that, I have to confess. I, I didn't know a whole lot more. And um, I took a quick look, and you know, sometimes if you don't know a man, you can you can know him somewhat by his friends. And so I took a look, and there are a number of names that have preached at his church: uh, Reverend Kimbrough, one of her own; Dr. Cairns, another one; another man by the name of David Castles, I think, has regularly been a speaker at his church, and uh, I remember one of the first conferences that were at the church, that, that was held at the church after my conversion over in Balamone was, uh, was taken by this man, David Castles. And uh, I, was, I was profoundly affected by his ministry on that occasion and greatly esteemed him since that day. Of course, he's not on sermon audio, so there have been times where I've been looking for, in the past, sermons by uh, David Castles, and the, there isn't this regular weekly kind of material, so some of the messages I had listened to of his were preached at our brother's church, and uh, so, you, you, as I say, you know a man somewhat by his friends, and uh, we're very glad to have Pastor Bartman with us, certainly he is known by some of you, I know that, I know that now, that you're familiar with him and his ministry there, he's been preaching for, is it since 73 there, since 1973, so... You're hitting a, you're approaching a very significant landmark up there uh, in North Carolina, and we thank the Lord for long and God-owned ministries, preaching the word faithfully, handling the word, and staying the course through half a century is not something to, uh, to just pan, pass over as if it's not significant. It's hugely significant, especially in our day. We see so many that fall by the wayside and shift with the changing sands, the shifting sands of, of our day. So we're very thankful, brother, to have you with us. Thank you for coming along. We trust the Lord will bless you as you minister to us today and again tomorrow. Thank you. I'll leave my watch. You know, he, he said, there's not, I've forgotten my watch, and I, I see there's no clock here. I said, well, there's no clock here for good reason. <laughs> he said, but, but... This is the one time when we, we, you really do need to watch the clock because we're, we're expecting breakfast at 9.30, so there you are. Yes, and when our stomachs begin to growl, our ears have a way of closing, don't they? So we don't want to go too long. Well, it is such a joy to be here with you. I have known a good many of you over the years and feel very much at home here, though I've never, <laughs> never preached in this pulpit before. In fact, I don't think, I'm trying to remember if I've ever preached in a free Presbyterian church. I did preach at a, uh, speak at a, a men's prayer gathering at Reggie Kimbrough's church one time, so that would be the closest I ever got to a Free Presbyterian pulpit that I can recall. I, uh, as long as I've been around, sometimes you forget things that have happened over the years. But I do feel a great 
kinship with you and have enjoyed so much knowing uh, many uh, people from the Free Church, as you generally refer to it, uh, over the years. Uh, we love the Pinkstons and the Dunbars, and um, you're on our prayer list, brother. We're praying for you and your, your present condition and your need of a lung transplant. We, uh, we use your hymnal. Thank you for allowing us to borrow it. You may not have realized, well, you probably did realize there are some Baptists who appreciate a Presbyterian hymnal, and this one has been perfect for our situation. A number of years ago, we, 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 we saw the need to, um, what should I say, upgrade our hymnal from the one we had been using, and we considered various things, and the majority of the Reformed Baptists that we know use the Trinity hymnal, which is a, a, a very well-known uh, Presbyterian hymnal. They like the older version. There's an older one and the new one. They like the old Trinity hymnal, and we looked at that and considered it, but we, we weren't totally satisfied that that's what we needed. We felt like we needed something that would, what should I say, help bridge the gap between the hymnal we had been using and the one we were moving toward to go to the Trinity hymnal would have been a big leap all at one time, <laughs> I promise you, in, in many ways, primarily in, um, in the style of the music itself. And um, then we heard that Joan Pinkston was working on a hymnal and working on a hymnal and working on a hymnal <laughs> and working on a hymnal. <laughs> We put in our order years before it was completed, and uh, it finally showed up, I think, at least two years after it was supposed to have been. <laughs> and here's what I was getting to. Um, on the first Sunday that your hymnal was put into service, there were two churches in America that used it on that Sunday. One was this one, and the other one was ours. Others have used it since then, but we'd had our order in place for years and years and years, so here it came, and we're still enjoying it very, very much. The hymns you sang last night are hymns that we love to sing. The hymn you sang this morning is one that we love to sing, and so we're indebted to you in that regard, as well as in many others. Uh, your pastor, Pastor Tomassian, is the first minister of this church that I did not know personally. Until now I do, but uh, when this invitation came to me from him, I was surprised in a number of ways, but particularly because I was being issued by a man that I had never met. But I did, had established a, a nice relationship with uh, Colin Mercer and enjoyed that very much. And I knew David Brame, and I knew some of the difficulties that happened there as well, but I, I knew him as well. And and then had a wonderful, wonderful um, relationship with Alan Cairns. And he did preach at our church for uh, two occasions for Bible conference. And we were talking to him about a third time, but by then he had relocated to Northern Ireland, and so it was a little more complicated than driving up from Greenville, but we were still talking about that, getting him to fly over and conduct another conference for us. And but we never did work out the details, so that didn't happen. But the, uh, the distance was not a problem for us. We do 
as you heard, regularly bring over uh, David Castles from the United Kingdom. Started doing that back when he was in Scotland and continued doing that as he is now in England and continues to minister in Chelmsford, England. He announced several years ago that he was getting ready to retire and kind of like the hymnal, it goes on year after year after year and it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and he's very happy where he is, though he does want to eventually go back to, of course, Northern Ireland, where else? And that's where he's from. And he will be going back there, I suppose, at some, some point. But these are wonderful uh, relationships that the Lord has given us over the years. But good to come here to, to talk to a number of you last night. Some of you I knew um, as part of this church. And then there's some that I didn't realize were part of this church. Is Tim Rogers here this morning? He came to me last night and I didn't recognize him at first, but I, he probably didn't recognize me either. I mean, it's been over 50 years, I think, since I had seen him. And, um, but before he told me, before he gave his name, it, 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 his name flashed through my mind and I realized who he was. That goes way back to my uh, Bob Jones Academy days. And I remember him working on the film Red Runs the River, which was being filmed back in the 60s when I was in Bob Jones Academy. So, uh, Greenville in many ways still I think of as my home. I started in uh, Bob Jones Academy in 1960 as a seventh grader and went through and that's where it began in those days. They didn't have a grade school. And I uh, went through the academy and then went through the university and then went to what they, in those days, was the graduate school of religion. They didn't have what they called a seminary in those days. And uh, was even considering going on, as I was talking to somebody about uh, last night, had... Uh, had applied for and was received into a PhD program and was going to become a graduate assistant and went out on a, what in those days they called it an ensemble. I don't think they call it that anymore. It's good to see Tim Farr. We haven't spoken yet, but I remember Tim from the Academy days. It goes uh, way back. Didn't she used to be in the Bible Presbyterian Church with uh, Randy Pond? And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember those days. But anyway, um, went out on an ensemble. And um, during that summer, the Lord began to impress on my heart the need to get out into the pastorate. I can't explain it. It's one of those things, very subjective. The Lord didn't speak to me, but I just had this impression that it was time to go. I didn't really need a PhD unless I was going to teach in, in the seminary. But what I really needed was an MDIV, but that wasn't available at BJ in those days. And to do that, I would have had to go off to someplace else. I thought maybe about going to Dallas Seminary, but I just felt like, no, it's time. I've been, uh, <laughs> been preparing for this for a long time. It's just time to spread my wings and, and see if I can fly. And um, through a series of events that I won't take time for now because we could spend all our time doing this and I do have a watch here, thank you. But um, the Lord took me to Burlington, North Carolina to, to begin a church with a group of people who were interested in, in starting a new church. They came out of a, 
conservative Southern Baptist church that had run into some real problems that I won't go into. And there were a group of them that wanted, they really wanted their church to come out of the SBC and become independent. And that was in the days, some of you young men would not recognize the Southern Baptist Convention as it is today from what it was in those days. In our day, for, for, for all that you can say about it, and it certainly has its problems, but in our day, uh, the seminaries of leadership are orthodox. They're conservative. They had a, what they called a resurgence, and it was quite successful. And they were able to root out the, the apostasy, the liberalism, that had controlled the SBC for a number of years. But back in the days I'm talking about, Back in the 60s and early 70s, all the seminaries were completely liberal. Uh, the publishing houses were putting out liberal commentaries. Now, the, the, um, the pastors, for the most part, were conservative. It was kind of an interesting situation. And so you had, it's kind of like, I hadn't thought about it till just now, but it's kind of like what we see very often in politics, how a few people get in control of the machinery, and even though they're not in the majority, they seem to be able to, to force their way because of the positions which they have acquired. And so that's what was happening in the SBC in those days. And so there were people that were very alarmed. And back in those days, again, some of you won't even probably uh, know the name John R. Rice, but that was a, an important name back in those days, put out a paper called The Sword of the Lord, and uh, put out some books, and he was writing books like Southern Baptist Wake Up and things of that nature. And our people that started our church were getting the sword and were getting these books, and so they wanted to come out of the SBC. But the people who had founded their church were loyal to the SBC, so it, it created a situation where eventually... They said the only solution is for us to leave. It's the only honorable and ethical thing to do. So we will leave, but we'd like to stay together and, and uh, not disperse into other churches. A number of the people from the church had already um, left the church and gone to other churches in the area. But they said, we'd like to keep our fellowship together and, and start a church. So they reached out and we talked and, and eventually that's what happened. Uh, Marty and I came to North Carolina in 1973 to begin a new church, meeting in a schoolhouse, a school cafeteria, and so forth. And at that time, I'll just say this much more, I'll never get into my message, but at that time, I would have been what I now understand to be Arminian. Now, I would not have, would not have owned that name back in those days, but... Uh, I was a Baptist. Baptists aren't Arminian. Methodists are Arminian, but Baptists are not, but I was. And um, so that's the way we began. We began with that um, orientation. But the Lord really began to work in my heart, and I saw some real problems that I had not recognized in that theological position. And so the Lord brought me to an understanding of the doctrines of grace. That was an interesting journey. And then trying to bring the church along, uh, having started out in an entirely different direction. That was an interesting journey. And, and God's goodness 
the journey was accomplished. Not without a few casualties along the way, I can assure you, but the journey was accomplished. And we have a strong, reformed, Baptist congregation, as those of you who have been there can testify to. We love the doctrines of grace. And we do feel, that brings me back around the circle, we feel very much a relationship to, to you folks and appreciate so much your faithful witness to the, to, to the, to the true gospel, the, the gospel of the sovereignty of God. And I, from, from a, one who is, who is not part of the free church and who is now far removed from Greenville, well, 200 miles, and I still have connections here, have uh, three of our four daughters graduated from BJ, and I have a son-in-law who teaches in the seminary, uh, Eric Newton, some of you will, will know him, but um, who has now taken a He's now an assistant pastor at Mount Calvary Baptist Church, but that just happened this summer. But as one who is a bit different distance and, and kind of looking at things from afar, I want to encourage you to believe that your testimony in Greenville and at Bob Jones has had a powerful impact, far beyond your size. There are bigger churches with more faculty and students who attend and so forth, but your, your strategic witness and where God has put people from this church uh, in, in places in the university has borne a powerful testimony. And I think in the providence of God, we will find out, uh, has had a great impact and a great, uh, a great influence on, on some of the changes that have taken place and my beloved alma mater over the years, so that Calvinism is no longer a heretic to be flushed out, but a heresy to be flushed out, but, but a, uh, a, a, an honorable position to, to embrace. And that's a big change. It wasn't that way when I was there. <laughs> Calvinists were regularly hitting the road, getting getting uh, dismissed. Not all, uh, thankfully, not all, but you didn't dare raise your head up very high or it got whacked off. If you kept it, kept it low, you were all right. But, um, oh, interesting things. One more, I, I may or may not get to where I'm going here, but one more. Some of you will really appreciate this. Um, I will remember Ian Paisley preaching at Bob Jones, he was invited to come every year for Bible conference. That was a standing invitation. One of those mysterious perplexities that the same man who on the one hand was, was, uh, was banning Calvinists from the university, at the other hand was inviting Calvinists to preach at uh, chapel and at, uh, at Bible conference. And I was sitting there in my assigned place. Well, I don't think you, we had assigned seats for Bible conference. We did for chapel. But I was, you know, I don't, I, this was a Bible conference, and I was sitting there <coughs> listening to Paisley preach in his 
totally unique way. Nobody, nobody has ever preached or ever will preach the way he preached. He had quite, quite an unusual style. And he was waxing eloquent about the blessed gospel. And he stopped. And he said, now when I say gospel, what I mean is T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement. I'm sitting here listening to that. I'm not a Calvinist. I didn't know what to think about that. To me, it was all... Um, I, was a, I was slightly familiar with this, but it was, more, it was more the drama of what was taking place because I, and there's Dr. Bob Jones Jr. sitting on the platform behind him. <laughs> Were you there when this took place? <laughs> and uh, I was probably in the academy. I don't remember when it was, but I'm thinking that you, you could have heard a pin drop. I mean, it was just, it got tense. And people were sitting there rigid in their seats. What is going to happen next? Is Dr. Bob Jr. going to get up and correct him? But no, he had more respect for this man than to correct him publicly. And so the service was over and he dismissed it. And nothing was said and everybody went out. And it was just like... You know, just like a regular service, but to me it was like a bombshell had been dropped. That was amazing. So, I could go on. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. When your pastor invited me to come, I told him I'm not a historian. I can't really bring profitable messages on history. I can read in history. I can say some things about history, but I'm not a historian. That's why we used to bring uh, Dr. Ed Pinozian to our church on an annual basis to do the history, and oh my, oh my, oh my, do I miss that man. Um, he, he did such a wonderful job, and, and really, many of our people who didn't think they liked history found out they do. When it came, came from that man, it was quite, quite a different story. It wasn't the history that they had been introduced to in school, which who knows what they had, probably just memorizing a lot of dates. But it really came alive with Dr. Pinozian. And what, of course, he did his biographical series on our church until he ran out. He said, I don't have any more to do. And he said, I'm too old to, to try to do another one, to, to, to do a new one. I said, well, let's do Martin Luther again. You did that one a long time ago, so let's do that one again. So he came and did that one a second time. And until finally he just said, I'm, I, I'm too old, I can't come anymore. And the last few times he came, he couldn't drive himself. Lisa drove, drove him up. And, um, but what a, what a wonderful memory from that man. But I'm not a historian. I know I can't do that. I'm a preacher, hopefully. I'm like the man that was the preacher who was complaining about his low salary, and he said, I'm just a poor preacher, and the little boy said, I know, I've heard you several times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a poor preacher. <laughs> but I can bring messages on themes that pertain to the Reformation, so I suggested some messages 
on justification. So my three messages this weekend are all drawn from the book of Romans, all surround the doctrine of justification. And uh, the one I'm looking at today in Romans 1.17, I'm calling justification the doctrine that rocked the Western world. And the reason it rocked the Western world is because it rocked the German monk by the name of Martin Luther, and then in God's providence, God used him in the Reformation to rock the Western world. But this is the text, above all others, and there were other texts, of course, that the Lord used in his life, but this is the text, above all others, that God used to bring Martin Luther out of the confusion of his Roman Catholic upbringing and his fruitless efforts to try to earn merit with God and, and to earn some sense of, of being right with God and realizing that that was impossible. It was not, not, not possible for anybody, not for him, not for anyone, and to realize that God had provided a way for men to be justified before a holy God. And this is the text, Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Now let's step back just a minute. I want you to consider something that you may not have thought about. And that is, I believe the issue of justification really is the central issue of all religions, not just biblical Christianity. What is it that is at the center of whatever religion we're talking about, whether it's a pagan religion of many gods, whether it is Islam? The whole issue is, how does a person get into a right relationship with God? If you're a Muslim, how do you please Allah so you can go to heaven and have 70 wives or whatever? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of error, but, but at the heart of every one of these religions, the pagan religions, is the same thing. How, how do I get right with my God or one of my gods? The God is angry at me. What can I do? What, what do I sacrifice a, a child? Do I, you know, the various things that are offered as, as solutions to this problem, how to get right with God. That's the common basis of virtually every religion. Job felt this tension when he said in Job 9.2, but how should a man be just with God? How can a man be just, be right with God. He wrestled with that, even though I think there's no question that he was right with God. He believed God, but nevertheless he felt this problem. How can I know that I'm right with God? How can a man be just with God? And think about that. Think about Job's statement. How can a man be right with God? Which is really the expression of virtually every religion in the world. They all ask the same question. They all propose different answers. This religion says to be, and this is the normal answer of all of them, to be right with God, you've got to do the right things. 
that God accepts for you to become right with Him. So you've got to adopt the tenets of our religion. You've got to, to do these good deeds, and you've got to avoid doing this. And if you will do this list of things, then you will be right with God, says this religion. And another religion comes along and says, well, no, you've got the wrong list. You've got to follow our list, do the things that we say, and that will make you right with God. And so everyone's list is different, but the foundation is the same. The solution is for man to do something that he can offer to God that will make him right with God. That's the solution, that every, virtually every religion in the world offers but one, and that, of course, is true biblical Christianity. Some would prefer not to call it a religion, but I have no trouble calling it a religion. It is the only true religion, but... But think about this, this whole idea of how can a man be right with God presupposes that man understands that he's not right with God automatically. Where did he get that idea? Even those who haven't had a Bible, who have no idea, there is this God-given sense that I am a sinner, even though Modern religion tries to tell the opposite. You're, you're, you're fine, you're good. But deep within the heart of every man, there is the sense, I have sinned, I have failed, I am not right with God, whatever their concept of God is. And that's why I need to do something to be right with God. So the issue of justification, how to be right with God, is really at the foundation of every religion. Of course, it takes the Bible to fill in the blanks of those who do not understand, to understand who God truly is. It is not the Muslim Allah. It is not other gods. It is the triune, eternal, uncreated, holy creator. There is but one God, and he reveals himself in Scripture. And that's the God that we must be related to. It is the Bible that tells us that man is a fallen, sinful creature living under just condemnation. Man has a sense of this, but the Bible fills in the blanks and helps us to understand it more fully. It is the Bible that teaches us that man is incapable of making himself right with God. And that's the difference between every other religion and Christianity. All the others say, you can do this, you can do it. You can make yourself right with God if you try hard enough and do the right things. And the Bible comes along and says, no, you can't. The Bible that teaches us that this holy God has himself designed and provided the way of salvation. And we can be made right with God, but we must believe what God has revealed about man's inability to make himself right with God. And that's the hardest thing to do, because along with this sense of sinfulness, there seems to also be in the heart of every fallen man a sense that I can overcome this, I can do this, I can, I, can, I, can, I can do right, I can be good, I can earn merit, I can, I can make myself right with God, 
this idea that I'm incapable of doing this is a foreign idea to the heart of men and women and is a foreign idea. It was a foreign idea to nearly everybody in Luther's day. But therefore, salvation hinges on the doctrine of justification. How a sinful man can be justified, that is, made righteous before God. Martin Luther struggled with that. We heard it last night. I enjoyed that, that presentation last night on the Diet of Worms. I knew a little bit about it. I learned a whole lot more about it last night. I went home last night and talked to my wife. I said, I wish you'd been there. And told her a good bit of what we had heard, shared some of the notes I had taken. She was babysitting. We have grandchildren in uh, Greenville, and, and uh, their mother had an assignment at their church last night, and prevailed upon her to keep the some younger children, and she reluctantly agreed to do that. And so, yeah. Well, Martin Luther struggled with that question. He struggled mightily with it. I'm not right with God. He knew it. He tried to become right with God, and he didn't understand how he could be. And in the providence of God, God assigned him to become a professor of Bible, a professor of religion, of theology, in the University of Wittenberg. I hope I said that right. It looks like Wittenberg to me, but it's, I think it's Wittenberg or something like that. I even looked up the pronunciation of, of the uh, diet of, of worms, and the uh, reference I found said it should be pronounced something like diet. Of verms, but I've never heard anybody say diet. I hear people say verms, but I even heard R.C. Sproul say diet, so it must be <laughs> acceptable. <laughs> he comes on the radio up in our area, and if I'm in the car when he's on, I love to listen to that man. What a, I never don't want to get into that, but I will say this I, I think, again, in the providence of God that that man is probably responsible for saving Presbyterianism in America. It was, there were, there were small pockets of Bible-believing Presbyterian like, like you all, and others like you. I was talking to somebody last night about how many little groups of Presbyterians there are. There's this one over here, and there's maybe a denomination of seven churches, and then there's one over here, and another little denomination of ten or twelve churches, and there are these all over, but um, Presbyterianism was, was sliding, sliding, and I, I think we'll find out in heaven that, that it was R.C. Sproul who just kept pounding away on the scripture and started that Ligonier ministry up in Pennsylvania and eventually went to Florida, but the Lord used him in a powerful way. And I think the reason why there is a strong Orthodox Presbyterianism in America today can, in the providence of God, probably be traced to the ministry of R.C. Sproul. But anyway, Luther, struggling. And as he was studying the book of Romans, and he, he, was, he, was, he was struggling with this, he came to the text that we're looking at today, and he couldn't see it through the eyes that we can see it today. We look at it today and we say, how does anybody misunderstand this? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that 
Worketh? No. Believeth. There it is. How could you miss that? How could you miss that? He did for years. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. How many times in two verses does the Holy Spirit of God tell us that we are justified before God, not by works, but by faith, for him to see it? And yet here he, he is a learned man who knows the Greek, who understands far more than I will ever understand. And he's struggling over this. He's looking at this same verse and looking at the righteousness of God. And all he can see is that God is a very righteous God. He got that part figured out right. God is holy, and I am not. And this righteous God demands righteousness of me, and I can't produce it. And he demands it. And I am fit to be tied, is what he was saying. In fact, it was in this struggle that he said something like, Love God. I hate God. I hate a God who demands a righteousness of me that I cannot produce. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I can't do it. He was right. He had to come to that understanding, didn't he? That he couldn't do it. As long as we are under the delusion that we can do it, then we'll never be saved. But when we understand nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And Luther had to come to that place, didn't he? Well, what is in this text, very quickly? Uh, five questions of the text. In what is the righteousness of God revealed? And the text tells us, in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Drop down, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed. It's revealed in the gospel. It's not always conspicuous in the gospel, particularly as some people present the gospel. This obviously is a missing emphasis in many people's understanding of the gospel or presentation of the gospel. But our text tells us that the gospel of Jesus Christ placards the righteousness of God. We must understand who God is. He is a holy God, an utterly righteous God. And that's revealed in the gospel. That's where the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, what is the righteousness of God? That's another question that we need to understand. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. What is the righteousness of God? A righteousness that belongs to God? Well, that would be correct. He is a holy God. A righteousness that comes from God? That's the part of the, of the formula that Luther had a hard time coming to understand, that not only does the gospel reveal the utter righteousness of God, but it also reveals that God brings this righteousness down to men. The righteousness of God is the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that God grants to those who believe, as the text says very clearly. But Martin Luther certainly had trouble with that. 
But there are a number of different aspects of the righteousness of God. We could talk about the rectoral righteousness of God. That has to do not only with who God is, but as much as anything with how He rules. He is a righteous ruler. He is a king who rules righteously. And that was a frightening thought to Martin Luther because he understood the utter righteousness of God and he understood that God rules His universe righteously and that spells doom for unrighteous people in their relationship to this utterly righteous God. He rules righteously. He doesn't fudge. He doesn't in the modern concept that many people have, God isn't, is not willing, is not inclined, is not able to just sweep offenses under the rug and say, that's all right, we'll forget about that. I'll not hold that against you. But the rectoral righteousness of God means that he rules righteously. And therefore, he demands righteousness in all of his creatures. Dun, da dun, dun. We could move from the rectoral righteousness of God to the retributive righteousness of God, and one flows from the other. Because he rules righteously, then he must pronounce judgment upon the offender, those who fail to live righteously. Retribution comes to them. God is righteous in his rule. God is righteous in his judgments. God is righteous when he pronounces judgment upon sinners. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God's retributive righteousness means that his justice must be meted out upon offenders. And that frightened Luther as well it ought to frighten everyone. But there's a third element of God's righteousness, and this is what it took Luther a long time to come to, but when he did, oh, what a change, and this is what he trumpeted. And that's what we could call God's redemptive righteousness. His righteous way of redeeming sinners. There is a way to do it without sacrificing the rectoral righteousness of God, the retributive righteousness of God. God, in His infinite wisdom, has designed a way that He can redeem sinners who otherwise could not be redeemed because if they must pay the penalty for their sins, then they are doomed. But if God overlooks their sinfulness without a penalty, then God is not righteous. This is a great dilemma, isn't it? And of course, the details of that solution are given to us in other parts of the book of Romans, particularly chapter 3. You're familiar with those verses, I know, toward the last part of chapter 3. being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness 
for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He, God, might be just. He remains perfectly just in His rectal righteousness and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Because, as we know, God in His amazing grace has chosen to satisfy the punishment, the judgment due unto believing sinners for their sins in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So He has not abrogated His righteousness. He has fulfilled it. But in His kindness, He not only demands the penalty, but He provides the satisfaction of the penalty Himself. He takes it upon Himself. That's what's so amazing. That's what's so amazing about God's grace. Was it Michael Horton who wrote the book, Let's Put Amazing Back in Grace, or something like that? And that's true. That's a real problem in, in modern Christianity today. People talk about amazing grace. They sing about amazing grace. But they tend not to very well understand what's so amazing about grace because too often it's just the idea, well, God is such a God of love, He just decided to overlook these sins. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that gracious? No, God can't do that. It, and the gospel tells us He can't do that because therein is the righteousness of God revealed. You've got to understand that God cannot just overlook it. I love that hymn in our hymnal, your hymnal. The perfect righteousness of God is witnessed in the Savior's blood. Tis in the cross of Christ we see, or in the cross of Christ we trace His righteousness and amazing grace. That, that whole hymn, that all, the, all the stanzas of that hymn, lay out the gospel in such clarity, such beauty. It's, it's what we're talking about here, the, the righteousness of God. There is a fourth element of God's righteousness that doesn't pertain quite as directly to the issue of, of, of justification, and that is what we would call the remunerative righteousness of God. God rewards our righteousness. And you say, wait a minute, we don't have any. Well, we do when we've been justified, when the imputed righteousness of Christ is placed to our account. Then we do have a righteousness that God in His incredible grace rewards. It's, it's the righteousness that we didn't have. He gave it to us. It's a... It's a an earning, an obedience of, of earning favor with God that we couldn't do until He enabled us to. But then Him having done that for us, He then rewards us for it. It's amazing. I was looking this morning, and I won't turn now, to that text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 where God talks about that, or Paul talks about that very thing, how that it is a righteous thing for God to, to condemn the unrighteous and to reward the righteous, to reward his children. And when, 
Christ returns, that's what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to punish the unjust and he's going to reward the righteous. But how did the righteous become righteous? Not by anything they did. It's through faith. They believed the message of God. Well, that's the um, righteousness of God. How was it revealed? And it is a revelation, isn't it? We would never know this apart from God revealing it to us. Certain things we do understand without the Bible. It's still a revelation of God from another, from another source. But some things we understand, such as our sinfulness and this struggle of how to be right with God, but how to be right with God is a revelation. It comes to us only in the Bible. It is revealed in the Scripture. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. It is revealed. And that was what Martin Luther eventually came to understand that this revelation of God's righteousness not only involved, and it, did, it certainly did involve a revelation of how righteous God is, and therefore how sinful man is in comparison to the righteousness of God, and in, in what great trouble man is because of his unrighteousness before God, but he understood that therein is the righteousness of God revealed, and this isn't so clear in the English, but that also carries the idea of therein is the righteousness of God imparted. Ah. Now that makes all the difference, doesn't it? God grants righteousness to those who believe. It's the gospel that teaches us that. Therein is the righteousness of God I don't know if I want to say transferred, but it is granted from the righteous God to the sinful rebel who believes the gospel and is thereby made righteous with God. What does faith to faith mean? I'm hurrying now. I've got about two or three minutes. It is granted from faith to faith. There have been a lot of different meanings proposed. From God's faith to our faith from weak faith to strong faith, and so forth. But I've come to the conclusion that it just means from faith, from beginning to end. It's all by faith. At the beginning, at the middle, at the end, it's all by faith. We're justified by faith. And that not of ourselves, that is a gift of God, lest any man should boast, but we're justified by faith. When God makes us alive to understand our condition, makes us alive to understand the gospel, makes us alive to be able to believe, which otherwise we could not before. And then we believe, we exercise faith, God doesn't exercise it for us, and then we are pronounced just before the judgment bar of God on the basis of our faith. But then we live the rest of our lives by faith. 
we do move into a different category because now having been regenerated, made alive by God, we are now able to do some things that we couldn't do before. And so we move from monergism to synergism. I'm sure you know what those terms are all about. The new birth, regeneration, is all of God. Why? Because we can't. We can't. We're dead. We're blind. We're unable. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. That was the text that finally helped my father to understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. That text right there, it finally dawned on him when we were talking about that text one day. He taught at BJ in the business department for a number of years. and um, Godly man, how I thank, thank the Lord for him. But he was one of these Calminians, you know, and uh, the light went on. The natural man can't. Can't. As long as he's a natural man. Well, if he can't, as long as he's a natural man, then how can he? He has to be made a spiritual man first. Well, how can a person be made a spiritual man if he has to believe first in order to be regenerated. No, it has to be the other way around. He has to be regenerated in order to be able to believe. Ah, that's the difference. That's, that's really the fulcrum point. You can argue about everything else. You can argue about the doctrine of election and so forth and so on, but it really boils down to this. Can man exercise saving faith before he's been regenerated? Answer, no. But once we're saved, then we do have spiritual capacity, but we can't really accomplish anything without Him. Jesus said that. Without me, you can do nothing. You still, we still must have His enabling, but now it's a, it's a cooperative effort. God must supply the ability. God must take the lead, but by His design, He involves us in that so that now we are responding, now we are cooperating, now we are doing, but it's still all by faith, we're doing this believing His promises, and so it's from faith to faith, from beginning to end. My fifth question that I will have to say amen to. So what does the just shall live by faith mean? It means that we are justified by faith. And that's it. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your grand justification. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. For us to chew on this morning, um, many of you here have been drinking from those wells for many years. Some of you perhaps have not. And this, this is the essence of it. That's Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there is no comprehension of how a man who is unjust can be rightly related to God. And it is through Christ then that we see this righteousness revealed and imparted to us by a wonderful imputation. So praise the Lord for that. You're hungry for more that which is perhaps more relating to the carnal, 
but uh, it's just as much needed as anything else. So we're glad that you're here. I'm going to give thanks for the food here so that we can just make our way downstairs and uh, some of you take the lead there as we go for breakfast. But again, thank you for coming. Come again tomorrow, 9.30, for our Sunday school again here in this building. Morning worship at 11, evening worship at 6 p.m. Both these men will again be addressing us tomorrow. And bring your friends, bring your family as well. Let's pray. Father, we do bless thee for the riches We ought to be in hell. We ought. There's every reason for every one of us to be this moment in the everlasting burnings of the judgment of a holy God. And how we bless thee that we are not running around seeking to establish our own righteousness, which is of the law. But we have received the righteousness which is by faith, the righteousness which is of God. Oh, we bless thee for Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah, said Kenyu, the Lord, our righteousness. Bless each one with an understanding of that, a saving knowledge of that here this day. We thank thee for the ladies, for the breakfast provided. Bless the food to us tabernacle in our conversation and our fellowship one with the other we pray in Jesus name Amen